All right. Good afternoon, Jay. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, this is, uh, my name is Nir Zakovich, and I'm the director of the Applied Ethics Center at UMass in Boston, and this is our podcast, the Ethics in Action podcast. My uh, very distinguished friend, Jay Hughes, is our guest today. Jay is a bioethicist and a sociologist. Um, his titles will take up uh, half of the podcast, so be prepared. He's uh, the executive director of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. He's a senior research fellow at our Applied Ethics Center and also the associate provost for institutional research assessment and planning at UMass uh, in Boston. Jay has done fascinating work in bioethics, in futurism, in uh, different questions in post-humanism. But today, sign of the time, Jay has been kind enough to agree to talk to me and to us about uh, trade-offs between public health and economic risk, and then maybe uh, more specifically about some of the questions that come up with rationing and allocating health resources in um, clinical settings during uh, uh, a pandemic. So, Jay, I thought um, that... Um, time allowing, we'd focus on between um, three and four questions. So one um, uh, about the broader characterizing of how you do priority settings in general, uh, then uh, maybe move into uh, talk about some of the, uh, how to think about some of the trade-offs that are presenting themselves to us between keeping ourselves healthy, flattening the curb, uh, limiting the spread of what is turning out to be a very deadly contagion and uh, the economic uh, fallout, and then move more specifically into these uh, heart-rending uh, questions that uh, we hope we don't have to deal with, but we may well have to deal with about allocating resources uh, and uh, setting priorities uh, in a clinical setting when there's not enough uh, uh, for everybody who's sick. And finally, if we have time, uh, Massachusetts just released a set of uh, criteria and guidelines for doing just that, and I'd be very curious to uh, hear what you think about those. So uh, let's start at the beginning, though. Um, talk to me about how to, um, how to think about priority setting in general. What do you think some of the sort of uh, broader philosophical, social scientific questions there are? Well, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this is that there's been a, a growing political debate about the trade-offs between the economy and saving lives from this pandemic. And um, there are some folks who are not very sophisticated in public policy analysis or ethics who have basically said there's that's a a capitalist question, that's a neoliberal question to suggest that one should consider trade-offs between the economy um, and pandemic uh, measures. Um, and I think that it's important to say off the top of the bat that of the different ways that we think about ethical trade-offs and public policy trade-offs, um, we're constantly required to think about um, the different uses of resources and the, the cost benefits of all of our actions. There are theoretically other options of ways to think about things. One could say, 
uh, one could have a deontological approach to say every life is infinitely precious and we should do everything we can to save every individual life. It immediately leads you to uh, you know, a dead end in terms of public policy. Um, you could say that it, it all depends on the character of the decision maker, a virtue uh, approach. Um, that doesn't really get you very far. Um, so almost all arguments in public policy are about uh, if we do X, the cost benefits are, are this, and if we do Y, the cost benefits are this, and we're trying to maximize something, happiness, uh, some kind of public good, if we're doing it right, if, you're, if we're considering public policy right. So I think it's inevitable that we do address this question of what kinds of costs we're imposing our, on ourselves with pandemic prevention measures. Um, and it, let me just ask you uh, to clarify, but is it fair to say that if you then accept that cost-benefit analysis is the only way to make progress in policy discussions, there is a point to the critic who said, who says perhaps so, but then we're kind of accepting the contours of the system as it is, and we're making decisions inside a certain system, a certain system of economic power relations as it's given. Right. Well, that's, uh, that is always true, that the, you, you don't come to a trade-off situation or decision without a whole lot of history behind it. The fact that we have systematically underfunded public health uh, in the United States means that we have fewer ICU beds per capita than some other countries. We have more uninsured. We have more people with chronic health conditions. If we had done what we should have been doing for 30 years, we wouldn't be in as bad a situation as we are right now and have to make some of the tragic choices that we make now. But that's like saying, you know, the Russian missiles are coming across the transom. Do, right. do you shoot them down or not? Well, if we had had different foreign policy for 50 years, maybe we wouldn't be in a yeah. war with Russia. But, you know, yeah. you're this the situation that you're in. But absolutely, you know, every trolley problem is like, well, why is that guy on the tracks in the first place? Maybe we should have thought about that ahead of time, and then we yeah. wouldn't have a trolley uh, trade-off situation. Right, right. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a mundane thing in public policy. If you try to figure out, should I spend 50 bucks to put a traffic sign up, there's costs and benefits. I'm slowing some traffic down. I might annoy some neighbors. You know, there, there's always costs and benefits to every way that you look, go about this. And the way that we think about in the law and public policy um, lives is incredibly controversial and weighted with political consequence and political bias. So the value of a statistical life, one way you can do it that it's done in public policy is how much is our, each of our lives worth to us. But another way you can do it is how much productivity can you get out of a person? If you do it with productivity, then if you're old or disabled, you're, you're worthless. Um, and so some economists would prefer, prefer to say every human life is worth $10 million. And others would prefer to say, well, not if you're retired or disabled. And that leads to some very dark places if you, if you follow that kind of a logic. Um, and then if you do, and even if you try to follow that, is a hedge fund manager actually worth, you know, a million times a cop or a nurse? Your, your actual productivity in the economy is a question now that we're talking about essential workers or not. So at any rate, I, I do think it's incredibly important that people not just dismiss as some kind of right-wing uh, intervention into public debate the notion that there may be trade-offs between public health and, and the economy. There are trade-offs, and we should be thinking about them. Um, 
in terms of how you think about them, <clears throat> there's well-established, you know, 200-year-old problems with thinking about things in a consequentialist way. Uh, what you put into the calculus and what you don't. There's the famous repugnant conclusion, which is, do we want to maximize the number of people on the planet to the point where everybody has just a bare minimum quality of life, but if we had 20 billion people, even that little bit of quality of life turns out to be greatest good for the greatest number compared to a planet of 5 billion living high quality lives. You know, how do you make those kinds of trade-offs between quality and quantity is always a problem. At any rate, with this particular lockdown, I think um, there are economists, there's a group out of uh, University of Wyoming that's recently published a paper that have argued that um, if you uh, say that every human life is worth X, um, and it's going to cost our economy a certain amount if we don't do anything uh, around COVID. You know, if, to, if we accepted a million people were going to die in, in these uh, you know, tragic ways versus shutting down the economy, maybe going into a depression and having to accept those economic costs. Um, uh, what, what do we get out of that? If we save X number of lives, do you multiply each of those lives times $10 million? Or do you take into account the fact that a lot of the folks who are going to die were sick and old and therefore not productive? Well, that's a pretty dark way to approach that calculation. But there are people who have been doing those kinds of calculations in this debate. Um, so I think it's, it's not at all straightforward uh, what conclusion one would draw. And it's clear that political biases do enter into it. People on the left tend to want to have a more egalitarian assessment of everyone's lives, and people on the right tend to be a little bit more economistic about it. Um, but uh, I, I think we should set that aside and look at just the question, uh, is it worthwhile to do such a calculation? And if you look around the world, you see that there are governments that are putatively left. You know, the Swedish government, for instance, has uh, adopted a relatively lax uh, COVID-19 policy. We'll see if they stick to that. Um, on the grounds that they, they thought that their healthcare system could, you know, sustain whatever challenges to come and that they'd rather keep their economy chugging along. And the argument there was that the guy wasn't on the tracks because they <laughs> did everything right from before. Yeah. Yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. If you, if you have enough foresight in your public policy. Yeah. But um, just to go back to, um, you know, how we think about these things, one of the most uh, popular ways to think about this in public policy is the quality adjusted life here. And Oregon, the state of Oregon adopted in the 1990s, a kind of modified version of using the quality adjusted life here. And the way that works is you say, what they did in Oregon is they say, um, how many things are there to treat? You know, 500 different kinds of things that people go to the hospital for. And for each of those things, if you didn't treat it, um, how long would that person have to live and how much quality of life would they have? Like, you know, lung cancer, six months to live, uh, declining quality of life. So you get, you know, a quarter of a, a quality, a quality adjusted life year. If you treat that lung cancer, maybe you get two years with a declining quality of life until you die. And so you have whatever the difference is between those two areas under that curve um, is the bang for the buck of what paying for a life, uh, paying for uh, treatment of lung cancer would be for that particular treatment. So you get this bang for the buck, and then you can get an estimate, say in the case of Oregon, you were going to pay for 
uh, you're trying to figure out what, which things you're going to include for poor people in Oregon for Medicaid. And you say, well, um, the things uh, at the top of the list are the things that have the biggest bang for the buck. And, um, and that has this price tag if we provide it to all poor people in Oregon. And then you just go down the list and say, well, this is how much we're willing to spend. And the things at the top of the list are like vaccinations for kids because kids, it's a cheap and kids live a long time. And if you don't get vaccinated, you can really impair your quality of life, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you get this huge bang for the buck of a, something like a vaccination. And the things at the bottom are um, uh, palliative care and, you know, expensive, give, giving chemotherapy to somebody who has, you know, a 5% chance of surviving their cancer uh, versus palliative care. So the way that Oregon did it was to basically hold a bunch of public discussions and say, what do you think should be prioritized? And most people, when you do these values clarifications exercises, um, come out with the, the, the number of life years Max, if not quality, because quality has some other issues going on with it, but at least maximizing life years, which means giving younger people and less sick people, people with fewer chronic conditions, priority over sicker people. Now, in most situations, clinically and in society, we don't have to make these tragic trade-offs. We can pretend to treat everybody the same. In our, of course, in our healthcare system, we don't, because what we really do is give much more resources to people who can pay for it and almost none to those who can't. And then we do first come first serve. And um, it's only when you get as a gunshot victim or a car accident or something like that, you get into the ER where they say, okay, well, you, you with a cold, you, you have to wait while I take care of this gunshot victim. That kind of triage happens in the ER, but usually it's first come first serve. So in most situations, we don't have to face these kinds of tragic trade-offs um, or face doing them in a, in, a, in a conscious way. But in this situation where we've got a shortage of critical uh, resources of ICU beds and hospital beds in general, um, and th from now until the middle of May, Massachusetts, Connecticut, uh, a lot of the states are going to be facing who they give these resources to, who they give ventilators to, ICU beds to. Uh, we do have to very consciously think about these trade-offs. And, and what's your own sense of the Oregon criterion? I think it worked well as a process. <clears throat> there were some things that um, politically people wanted to move up, even though the, the formal calculus of the way that they were trying to figure it out didn't warrant it. Um, you know, there are certain forms of, um, uh, there, it's, it's always hard to say, I'm sorry, you know, you, we could spend X, to save your life, but we've decided that that money should be better spent on somebody else. And so there have been cases in Oregon where, you know, they wanted an organ transplant and they, they made a big to-do about not being able to get that through the Medicaid system. And, um, and sometimes that has an influence. But I think it's a far more, from an ethical and public policy point of view, it's a far more uh, rational way to do it. Now, the problem is, as, as with trying to figure out what the trade-offs are between public health uh, intervention and the economy, there are so many unknowns and so many uh, metrics that, that are just wild guesses that it's really hard to do that. But within the context of a healthcare budget, and it was the quality idea, the quality adjusted life here was developed in the context of the British National Health Service. And so they're given X amount of money every year and they have to figure out what to spend it on, which resources to invest in. 
And I think in the in the context of that, it makes perfect sense. So so let's go back. Let's come back later to the question of uh, the criteria of when to open the economy a little more. And since we uh, ventured more into the clinical setting uh, uh, question and to the criteria of how to allocate scarce resources. So you think one of the virtues of Oregon's decision-making about uh, a number of years left, as it were, was that it was a deliberative process and as a result, it has greater legitimacy? Yes, absolutely. How much I mean, does that matter? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that expert decision-making, I'm not, a, I'm not a, a complete fan of the notion that um, focus groups or public polling uh, inform ethical decision-making any better than expert panels do. Mm -hmm. And one of the examples of that is the uh, project, I think, at MIT, where they had several tens of thousands of people um, answer the trolley problem from all around the world. And you find interesting things, you know, uh, Catholics are more likely to want to save nuns than, you know, other people, et cetera, et cetera. But it, does any of that really amount to an eth it, it, they It may be the actual decision-making that people do, but does it amount to an ethical decision? I don't think right. so. Right, and who participates and, you know, what the, <clears throat> what the limitations to participation are. But anyway, so that's one criterion, namely you don't have enough ventilators and you calculate how many more years, as it were, you could save. What are, what are some of the other significant criteria that sort of make the, that come into this discussion? Well, as I said, uh, ability to pay is the way de facto it often works, but very few people are willing to defend that as an ethical way to do it. And it doesn't seem like that's being seriously considered right now. No, fortunately. No. Um, <clears throat> the first come, first serve is another uh, random uh, assignment. So there are proposals, for instance, if we have a shortage of vaccines uh, in the coming year, once we get a vaccine for COVID, that the first people to get it should be randomly assigned. And for certain kinds of social costs and benefits, we do that. You know, the draft was a random assignment um, when we had one. Um, but sickest first is another way to go, which is the way that ERs typically worked, uh, um, and that's an attempt to, to save lives. And that and so, comes to direct conflict with numbers of year number of years. Exactly. Right. right. And this and one of the most rational rationing systems that we have in the United States is the organ rationing system. Mm -hmm. And it's very finely calibrated and uh, uh, very political over time to, def to figure out which of these different kinds of metrics you use. If you do sick sickest first, then that means that, you know, the person who's going to get the organs uh, may only live a short period of time, and that's a scarce resource that you wasted. And so the, um, the UNOS organ rationing system um, has tip, tipped towards maximizing number of life years, which means that somebody who's not as sick might get a higher priority than somebody who's sicker. And I think that's what the current recommendations um, for COVID-19 related rationing have tipped towards and what Massachusetts, as we'll talk about, has adopted yeah. is a maximizing life years, not quality, but life years. Now, I mean, another candidate uh, next to maximizing uh, life years, I'm assuming would be, since that involves a degree of projection forward, would be surviving the current episode or surviving the current 
uh, hospitalization, which is a little bit different from maximizing life years, I'm assuming. I mean, they, there may be a correlation there, but they're not the same thing. Is that, is that a criteria that's taken up? Well, the, the criteria that Massachusetts just adopted and what uh, people like Zeke Emanuel um, and others have been recommending is explicitly to go beyond surviving your hospitalization. So in other words, if you had two uh, patients and one might be light, slightly less likely to survive hospitalization, but is 18 and the other one is 65 and slightly more likely to survive hospitalization, you might prioritize the 18 year old hmm. because if you do save their life, they have all these life years left. Got it, got it. Um, well, wow. let me also say something near, which is that this is this set of questions is part of the origin of bioethics. Um, it was in the 1970s when we first invented dialysis machines that hospitals had to figure out which of all the people who had kidney failure they were going to give access to dialysis. And what turned out was that a lot of hospitals had set up committees to make these decisions that were doing some pretty hinky things, like saying, well, this a uh, guy is an alcoholic and this lady has three kids and this uh, minister's a, a you know, pillar of the community. So we'll give it to the minister and then the lady with three kids. They were making social quality life assessments that people on scrutiny thought were inappropriate. And so um, you know, the idea that we should be, can't be more conscious and less biased and not bring in extraneous social contribution um, thinking into this has been with us for 40 years. Right, right. Uh, now, but I think we are bringing in um, social roles, social contribution uh, factors, at least in a limited way, because I saw that in some of the guidelines, for example, there is explicit discussion of prioritizing uh, healthcare staff, for example, prioritizing doctors and nurses and so on and so forth. Now, there's an obvious reason for that right because we really need them right now and on the other hand there's a, a slippery slope right there for example what about the public health expert who's uh, 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 specializes in statistical analysis and could be you know super helpful what about the person who's doing cutting-edge research on um, uh, uh, identifying an antibodies of COVID-19 which are uh, important for uh, plasma treatment uh, that's being developed and so on and so forth. Uh, so, so the sort of social role thinking kind of becomes hairy pretty quickly, but we are practicing it as we speak, aren't we? Well, we are. Just think about the recommendation from the CDC that we um, not wear N95 masks in public and save them for healthcare workers. Clearly, the N95 mask, if it's valuable for a healthcare worker, it's also valuable for you. But the reason that we recommend that the best of those resources go to healthcare workers is that they are saving lives all the time. You are not. The way that you save a life is just to stay home. The way that they save a life is by putting their own lives at risk. So, you know, I think there is a defense. I'm a philosopher. We save lives all the time. Well, there you go. Yeah. I mean, yeah sociologists too. Uh, but... Um, I think there is a defense, and it, it, this is where clinical decision-making wraps back around into social decision-making or social prioritization, is that if you want your streets to be safe, if you want your hospitals to be staffed, 
you uh, give the vaccines, the, the protective equipment, the ICU beds first to the healthcare workers who are going to be maintaining all of those systems. Otherwise, uh, I, everything falls apart. And I think that's completely understandable, but the end right in the end, but the social role considerations, which are taken to be, you know, which in a sort of ad absurdum uh, uh, version of do you uh, save the, uh, you know, the great composer or the bus driver, uh, you know, get a bad reputation. Uh, a version of that is being done. And I'm wondering whether from your experience and from your study of this, does the slippery slope question occur to people setting the standards? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's not just that it occurs to them, it's that as soon as they open their mouth on this topic, somebody's going to slap them upside the head. You can find easily lots of articles being written right now of people hostile to the idea of anything other than first come first serve or a lottery system in terms of priority setting, certainly hostile to the idea that healthcare workers should put themselves first in the queue for critical resources. Um, but uh, as we'll say, discuss the Massachusetts um, standards that were just adopted uh, reflect, I think, what most bioethicists would say. Let me also say something about the history of this, um, not just the, uh, that it's 40 years old in terms of how we think about it, but um, we went through a very specific set of episodes uh, when we adopted Obamacare that made all of this a lot harder to talk about. And that was the accusation that Obamacare was trying to institute death panels. And that uh, the, one of the people who uh, was focused on was the bioethics advisor to the Obama team, Ezekiel Manuel, um, who has been very prominent in writing for decades about different ways of going about uh, doing priority setting under ordinary clinical conditions and extreme clinical conditions like this. Um, and he had argued for certain kinds of consequentialist uh, approaches to this and um, putting healthcare workers at the top of the queue and so forth. Um, and that combined with cost effectiveness research, which is simply saying the government should be doing research to figure out if I spend a thousand bucks a pop on this uh, stroke medicine, does it really make sense if I could just give somebody aspirin and accomplish almost the same amount? How much does that extra little bit of stroke benefit worth in terms of the public dollar or shouldn't those thousand dollars be spent on an extra ventilator or something like that? That that simple idea, cost effectiveness, that the government should be doing cost effectiveness research and recommending that you spend money on X instead of Y, was demonized 15, uh, 10 years ago when we adopted Obamacare um, as wanting to kill grandma. And um, Ezekiel Manuel in particular was focused on. And so it's made it all that much harder for us to do the kind of thinking we need to do now. Mm. Um. So maybe that's a good point to transition into uh, what Massachusetts uh, has uh, come up with, the uh, guidelines from uh, the state's uh, uh, Committee on Rationing uh, Healthcare have just come up. What, um, talk to me about what you see there, what, what, you think, uh, what you think about it, what's right, what's not right. Well, these were just released uh, two days ago. They're the result of a committee of about 
uh, 25 different uh, Massachusetts uh, physicians and bioethicists and nurses and all kinds of folks. Um, and I think that, they, that the guidelines that uh, Massachusetts has put forward, they're called the Crisis Standards of Care Planning Guidance for the COVID-19 Pandemic. Um, and they were adopted two days ago. Uh, in relationship to the March state of emergency that the governor declared. Right. Um, and so they are guidance to all the hospitals about how to go about priority setting for beds and ICU beds and ventilators. Um, and I think that they reflect the best thinking in the field. So the first thing to say is that um, they make very clear that there are different stages uh, or different uh, levels at which you think about clinical decision-making. If you're in an ordinary situation, you don't have to make some of these tragic choices and you can just let things do first come first serve or you know, the kind of ordinary triage that you do in an ER. But if you're in a pandemic, a natural disaster, if, um, you know, if hospitals have been destroyed by floods, uh, if, you're, if you have these kinds of critical shortages, which we expect for the next couple of weeks, then you do have to make some of these uh, critical decisions. The other thing I think that's good in these guidelines is that they make very clear that the role of the clinician should be separated from the role of the rationing officer. So in other words, they say that each hospital should be appointing a triage officer or officers and a team and then a review and oversight committee that is also an appellate body. Um, and that's very important because you don't wanna put the burden on individual clinicians who are trying to do the best by their patients um, to say you have to also be thinking about whether this ICU bed or this ventilator would be better used by somebody else. That should be somebody else's role within the healthcare system. And does the triage officer have the kind of immediate understanding of the clinical situation though that the clinician does? Are there enough triage officers to be able to do that? Do they have the kind of experience to, I mean, it seems like the clinician does have a privileged insight into the calculation that's required. Well, that's why the guidelines are specific that the, the, when these assessments are done, and, and just to say, the assessments of triage start with the first responder. So you, you call up and say, I'm, I have shortness of breath. They're doing triage. They're trying to figure out whether you should come into the hospital or not. Um, if you fall down on the street, the EMS person is gonna do some triage. When you get to the hospital, they're gonna do triage. But they're also now, if what we're talking about here is when you're in a bed, then, um, or, or even in an ICU bed, there's going to be a periodic review. And if you meet certain uh, criteria, you might be moved up or down in terms of the priority for whether you need to stay in that bed or not. And that's not something that ordinarily happens. And so, yes. Um, it, it is a, it's going to be a discussion between each clinician, each uh, attending physician and, and the family and the patient. They all have to be told first by the triage officer if they think that their status has changed and they need to not get a resource. Um, and that'll be a discussion that I'm sure will be quite painful in yeah. a lot of situations. Do you, do you have any sense of, I mean, maybe not, but do, do you have any sense that this is probably a developing situation of how, of how the clinicians themselves see this or do they welcome it do you think or i think one of the huge um, problems is the clinicians are completely overwhelmed both 
very few clinicians are trained to think about these things in the first place and and you know they're think they're they're trained in what the standard of care is in ordinary circumstances which is to do the most for your patient and yes they may say to an 85 year old well i don't really think you're a candidate for organ transplantation because you know you probably wouldn't do that well or live that much longer they can make those kinds of futility discussions with patients but they're not trained to think about the trade-offs with one icu bed versus another um, and I, I think it's also going to cause tremendous emotional hardship. And we've seen this in Spain and Italy, where these things are happening every day. And, and Spain and Italy have their own versions of these um, rationing guidelines. Um, and we see how tragic it is for clinicians to have to make the decisions. Yeah. Yeah. So is the maximizing life years guideline in there? For Spain and Italy? No, no um, for Massachusetts, I meant, sorry. Yes, it, the Massachusetts uh, guidelines are specific uh, to maximizing life years. Mm -hmm. Now, the, w the way that they go about doing it, um, I mean, I think, you know, you and I are teaching a course together on artificial intelligence, and I think um, you could imagine a much more sophisticated way of coming up with uh, a calculus of how many life years one bed was going to produce versus another. But what it says here is, to the extent that resources become scarce, maximizing benefit will involve attempting to maximize life years saved, not only attempting to save the most lives. This will involve determinations of eligibility for critical care resources based on a combination of prognosis for short-term survival and prognosis for long-term survival. So long-term, that's what gives the, the young an advantage over the old. Yeah, you know, one, one peculiar thing that I noticed looking at the guidelines, uh, and I wonder if you think that that matters, um, you say that uh, the guidelines represent the um, most advanced uh, state-of-the-art thinking uh, about this. I noticed- well, that's in the eye of the beholder, but- Well, I mean, I, I, I think that, I mean, I, I think that the, Objectivity is certainly relevant to uh, evaluating these kind of guidelines. There's not a person on that committee who's outside from a hospital setting. There's not uh, a sociologist on there. There's not a philosopher on there. Uh, there's not. Uh, um, so, I mean that. I think this. I think the question is both parochial and uh, uh, provincial and legitimate. In other words, uh, is that a problem that there isn't an external non-medical setting angle on there? Everybody there has a hospital, if I could tell. I'm sorry if I'm not being accurate, but from looking at the list twice and even looking at some of the bios of the people, everybody there, um, who is on the committee who came up with these guidelines who are going to you know we hope not but there's a large likelihood that are going to be making life and death decisions are from inside a hospital setting now obviously they have the relevant experience on the one hand do they have the larger social scientific humanistic context well i i think sexual interest definitely would play a role and we're talking specifically here about clinical decision making so I think it's less troubling in that context than if we're they were trying to determine clinical what? decision. But we're talking about the ethics of the clinical decision making, not yeah, I mean, clinical decision making. I, 
I think they could have used an extra philosopher or two. Um, I'm certainly prone to think social scientists can make a contribution to these debates. That may have added, I don't know that that adds that much more legitimacy because, I mean, does the average layperson looking at a panel of academics uh, in addition to doctors? Oh, I, 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 I think it would bleed moral legitimacy. Uh, or, or well, well, let me put it, let me put it different. I think it would bleed public legitimacy. It would take away public legitimacy. But public legitimacy isn't all that matters because sometimes the public is wrong. The question is, would it add any relevant depth of thought to the process to add a social scientific slash humanistic slash critical perspective to what is largely a professional clinical cadre, which is most likely the you know, the most relevant set of expertise. It just seems like a somewhat narrow set of expertise. I, I think you do have a point, but I think it's more appropriate to the larger public policy discussion, which is that you see some of these economists suggesting, like with climate change, that climate change is just a conspiracy of ecology professors who want to get more funding for their research. And they're saying a similar thing about public health, that somehow this um, whole idea that COVID was going to kill a bunch of people or cost us by killing a bunch of people was a conspiracy of public health people who just wanted more money for their vaccination and public surveillance programs. Mm -hmm. um, and to the extent that there are sectoral interests, and I do think, you know, we spend 18% of our GDP on the healthcare, American healthcare system. Britain spends 5% of their GDP. What's the appropriate amount of your GDP to spend on healthcare? I don't think that doctors and nurses should make that choice because I know how they did that, you know, what choices they would make. Um, it's probably someplace in between. But I, uh, yes, I think for any kind of larger discussion, you need that political legitimacy. I'm, I'm not sure in this particular case, I see it as problematic. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's, you know, for me, been a larger kind of question about who it is that should be doing medical ethics or, um, uh, but so maybe um, maybe let's uh, backtrack and reverse a little bit to uh, the question of um, when we should be opening the economy, um, the uh, the larger rather than immediate trade-off in uh, uh, clinical setting uh, kind of question. Um, how would you advise to think about that? if we had a rational government that took any advice, which we don't. But uh, what goes into that discussion? Well, there was a great uh, roundup of six different papers thinking about this from different angles. Um, and one of the papers was from the Deaths of Despair team, um, mm -hmm. book Deaths of Despair. Yep. And they pointed out that their research and others have shown that um, life expectancy actually goes up during depressions and recessions. Yes. Um, you know, people uh, aren't killing themselves with obesity. When Cuba lost the Soviet subsidy that they were receiving up till what, 1993 or something, they went through a severe uh, economic contraction and the amount of calories that the average Cuban ate <clears throat> dropped like 500 calories per day, some, you know, for years. And what they found was that um, diabetes went down, obesity went down, life expectancy went up. Um, now, that's not true of all depressions and recessions, but it tends, apparently it's true of most of the depressions and recessions in the 20th century for wealthy countries. So we may find that 
um, although we're all experiencing a lot of stress and isolation as a consequence of this, that there, there are a lot of attendant benefits um, to this particular lifestyle that we're adapting to. Now, that unemployment causes people stress and um, uh, there's a lot of domestic violence apparently that's coming out of this. So I, I wouldn't be too sanguine about that. But I think it is, it's very hard to parse what the costs and benefits are. If, if this causes us to have a turning point, you know, I, I think this is the death of neoliberalism personally. And if this causes us to have a political turning point where we all start thinking in a more communitarian, egalitarian public policy direction, this could have been the best thing since, since sliced bread. I mean, it, it took a, a major pandemic to, to change the way that we do politics in the, in the United States. Um, but setting all of that aside, the way people have been thinking about this is what's the value of, what, what's the economic disruption that not doing anything would cause? Um, and so you would crush hospitals, you would in fact, you know, kill lots of uh, workers as well as lots of non-workers. And all of that has some theoretical uh, assessment of cost. Um, and there would be, you know, whether we tell people not to go to movie theaters and restaurants and all the rest, they still know that there's risk involved and there, there's still going to be a decline in economic, certain kinds of economic activity as a result of the disease. So it's not a question of whether we just maintained everything as usual while a million of our fellow citizens dropped dead around us. That wasn't going to happen. It's a matter of um, what kinds of economic costs would not doing this well uh, uh, entail and what kinds of economic costs would doing this maximally through social distancing, shutting uh, lockdowns and quarantines and so forth entail. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are other options too, like, you know, the Korean maximal testing, if we had had that in place or had a government that cared about doing that. Um, uh, contact tracing, if we adopted uh, some version of the Chinese uh, model of automatic contact tracing through using the location data on our phones, um, that could have an effect. So there, there are other public policy options out there and people have tried to parse out the costs and benefits of those. But at any rate, I think it makes a big difference whether you think that all human lives have equal value or whether you're actually trying to figure out, uh, you know, if we got rid of all the, you know, famously the tobacco manufacturers have lobbied governments saying, you don't want to ban uh, tobacco. Uh, tobacco kills you, at, once you get lung cancer, tobacco kills you in about six months. If you let those people die of natural causes, it can take 10 years for people to die of Alzheimer's or, uh, you know, COPD or whatever. Um, so uh, tobacco is a win-win. Uh, it's a cost-benefit, you know, bonanza for your healthcare system. Those kinds of logics um, are also relevant here. It's like, is it better or worse for our economy for old folks, sick folks to die? Well, I don't want to go down the road of saying, oh, and when we come out of this on the other end, it's going to be great because we, a lot of folks who would otherwise have been very expensive for our society were killed. That's a terrible way to think about this. On the other hand, I don't know that maximizing every life as if it's equally worthwhile, and that gets back to this clinical uh, maximizing life years and or maximizing quality life years, those kinds of things. I think those logics are more defensible from a consequentialist point of view, but, um, but they're difficult to do. But, I mean, either way, if there's a broad argument that there's benefit in 
slowly going back to normal. From what we're learning about how the curve is flattened, it seems like somewhere in July, August, it would be possible to experiment with sort of some loosening, right? And seeing, you know, while, you know, if you sort of maintain the uh, Fauci line, while maintaining the ability to go back pretty quickly to social distancing, but what's the appropriate, you know, if that's the practical way to open up the economy, what's the appropriate fashion in which to do that? Is, is that left up to states? Is that a federal decision, given that that, necessarily involves a significant amount of risk. I mean, essentially, it seems like the going back to normal is not going to be, you know, one, you know, it's not going to be like Camus plague, then that one, you know, one day it disappears, it's going to be a set of experiments and seeing, oh, well, how did that work, right? Let's open up and, you know, see whether we have enough herd immunity. Let's open up and, you know, see how many, what kind of rise we get in the level of uh, uh, cases. Uh, well, in the first place, uh, I'll just say that, that. Yeah. I, I, I'm encouraged by the fact that <clears throat> the death rate in the United States has, for the last couple of days, been slowing. Um, we had been on a three-day doubling rate, and so it seems like there is evidence. I, I don't pay any attention to the case um, counts because we've had such poor testing, and most of the case counts around the world have are based on very little um, empirical <laughs> reality. But um, the death rates are a pretty strong measure. And mm -hmm. the fact that those are slowing down, that's a very good sign. Mm -hmm. um, it, whether um, we could, when we could open up and start going back to work and um, you know, public entertainments, um, I, the epidemiologists that I think are most convincing are the ones who have argued that uh, we'll probably have to have a couple periods over the coming year until we have widespread vaccine, a couple periods of loosening and tightening um, in response to what's called the r not the how many people do, do each people infected with this infect? And um, you have to bring down the hammer really hard at the beginning to try to bring the r not below one so that it begins to peter out or at least close to one. And then you can tight, loosen up a little bit and see if it's beginning to peter out or not, or if it's um, gonna come back. And- So it's interesting, I mean, basically you're saying that we don't know what the impact of opening the economy is going to be until we try to open the economy. And I see. think that's right, yeah. I mean, I think that the, the projected surge on our healthcare facilities um, uh, it looks like it will probably peter out or go back to normal levels um, by mid-May, but that, but this has imposed this enormous cost on society. So we do want to allow people to go back to ordinary business as soon as possible. Just on, on the question of whether it should be state by state, having a state by state policy is like having a peeing section in your swimming pool. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it really makes absolutely no sense that we allowed. Uh, you know, Alabama to say, oh, we're not, we're, we're tougher than that. We don't have to do that. Uh, that made no sense. Mm -hmm. uh, we should have had a strong federal centralized policy. Mm -hmm. This administration doesn't want to take any responsibility for this. They want to leave it all to the governors and, you know, less said about that, the better. But um, 